Welcome to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy. And in this week's episode, I decided to do an encore presentation of one of my favorite episodes from almost about a year ago, which I still can't believe, uh, with Dr. Bronnie Thompson. And we talk about living well with chronic pain. And this was an episode that for me was very personal and uh, very emotional. And you'll find out what Bronnie did to make me cry, which I have to say, since this episode aired and since I'd spoken to Bronnie, it really does feel like a weight had been lifted off of my shoulders, which is which has been which has been wonderful. And for those of you out there who have had chronic pain, who are currently living with chronic pain, it's it's something like it, I can't describe it, but the way I felt after this episode is like, yes, I understand that I have chronic pain, but it it's not what defines me and that I can still live so well, even though I have maybe a little bit of pain here and there, or I have maybe flare-ups once a year. Um, but this is an episode, if you're a clinician, if you're a student and you are working with people in pain, it is a must listen. You know, we hear so much about the patient experience and making, you know, that the patient experience is, is so important, which, which it is. And I think people like Dr. Bronnie Thompson are the people leading the way in the patient experience. So really listen to her words and take them in because it will change. If you have chronic pain, it will change your life. If you deal with patients with chronic pain, it will change the way you practice. She is just this, this wonderful person who is able to articulate very complicated concepts very, very well. So, so what do we talk about? We talk about how to live, how to learn to live well despite chronic pain. And we talk about her research on the three phases to reoccupy your self-concept how to incorporate values-based pain management into your practice. And you'll, you'll understand more about what we mean by values-based. And it's something that I now do with all of my patients. Uh, the value of motivational interviewing, the specifics of implementation, and why it's not always about pain. And let me tell you, the majority of the time, it's not. I can tell you that from personal experience. Yes, the pain is there, but it's not always about the pain. And I think that's so important to remember. So you know, this episode was, it was so important to me and so personal that I decided to give it an encore presentation this week. So I really hope you all enjoy it because like I said, it was a big turning point for me. It felt like a weight was lifted off of me afterwards. I don't know if it was the crying or if it was Bronnie or, or her words and what she said. And, and I really took them in and it was a life-changing moment for me. So hopefully it will be that way for those of you maybe in pain and for those of you treating people with chronic pain. Hopefully it will be life-changing and practice-changing for you. Um, now before we get to that, I just want to remind everyone that the Women in PT Summit is just a couple of weeks away, which I also can't believe. So if you didn't get your ticket, get over and get your ticket before the early bird pricing ends because it is ending soon. So you can go to womeninptsummit.com and you can get your ticket, find out more information, look at all the great speakers. We're going to have a PT pub night afterwards. There's going to be raffles. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and we've got some great people, not only great people speaking, but incredible people attending. And I'm so, so, so very thankful for that. And I'm also so thankful for all of our amazing sponsors. And you can see all of them at the womeninpt.com womeninptsummit.com website. And we are so, so thankful for all of them and thankful to everyone who signed up so far. Um, okay, so we've got that. We've got Bronnie Thompson today. If you want any of the things that Bronnie and I talk about, you can go over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and all the links are there. So everyone, please enjoy this episode. It meant so much to me and I hope that it means as much to you. Okay, here's Dr. Bronnie Thompson. Hey, Bronnie, how are you? And thank you for coming on the podcast today all the way from New Zealand. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And it's a beautiful spring day here. A bit warmer than probably in New York. Well, I don't know. It's, it was like 75 today. 
Convert that to Celsius. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, let's not. <laughs> I don't know. I used to actually know that pretty good in my head, but now I don't know. Um, but let's just say maybe around the same. No, it was, it's been beautiful here. We had a really crap weekend. It just rained and rained and rained all weekend. So um, I'm, it's, today was beautiful. And when I, you know, I see patients in their homes, so I'm outside all day walking from one person to the next to the next. So oh, a rainy lovely. day is really not fun. So this was great. But thank you for, for coming on. And like the weird part is like technically you're in the future <laughs> because yes. right now we're recording this on a Tuesday, but for you it's actually a Wednesday. It's Wednesday. It's it's halfway through Wednesday. Right, so. right. And we're just sort of finishing up the day here on Tuesday. It always just like it's so trippy. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Um, of course, uh, I have heard so much about you from Sandy Hilton and Sarah Haig, and you were in Chicago over the summer, right? Spring summer um, it was June. Yeah, June. Yeah, yeah. yeah over it was the summer. Wonderful. Yeah. I fell in <laughs> oh, with Chicago? Yeah. 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 Just lovely. And lovely people. Yes. I really love yes. meeting Sarah and Sandy. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. <laughs> but they, I mean, Sandy said after you spoke that she really, it had such a profound effect on her that she really kind of was looking at her treatments in a different way. So I'm really happy to have you on to talk about what made such a profound shift in an already very accomplished physical therapist like Sandy Hilton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just a wonderful opportunity to meet with people who are also passionate about um, helping people from a person-centered practice rather than imposing something on, on people. Sandy and Sarah are looking to help people find their own way and identify what's important to them. And so I think some of the things that I talked about are really about doing that and also realising that we are people. That makes us people with a patient who's also a person. And that connectedness makes a huge difference to how we think about the way we talk with people. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to get into all of that in a little, in a little bit. But first, <laughs> let's talk about you. So... <laughs> You started out uh, originally trained as an occupational therapist. So why did why why did you want to become an occupational therapist? Well, it went back to school days, and I actually applied for physiotherapy and occupational therapy. And the um, the occupational therapy really because I had an opportunity to go to the hospital, and we spent a day of in your final years looking at other occupations. I, I walked around with a physiotherapist and I spent some time with the occupational therapists and the physios were doing um, lots of, oh, they were doing wax baths and um, ICU treatments and I thought it was really exciting. I thought they, they're making real difference in, in people's lives. The OTs got to play with lots of gadgets and bits of equipment and we're bridging between the hospital and the person's own home. And I thought that was a really nice area um, to work in. So I applied for both of them. And um, the simple fact is the occupational therapy acceptance came first. Okay. Right, mail first. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's a reason. That's a good reason. Yeah. And so how long were you working strictly as an occupational therapist before you – uh, went back and and got uh, a PhD. Um, it was a it's been a fairly lengthy process. So in the late eighties, I graduated in 83, 84. Um, and I worked until the late eighties doing basic OT, some hospital based work, and then I did some work in a work rehabilitation center that sadly closed down. And when that happened, I had just started developing a private practice to look at return to work for people. What I found was that most of the people that I saw had chronic pain as their main limiting factor for their re return to work. And so I decided to learn more about pain management. Um, I had a little bit of an insight because I, I have fibromyalgia at that time 
way back when I first graduated from OT, a patient and I collided mid-door, back pain, um, lots of treatment, didn't help, eventually got seen by um, Dr. Mike Butler, who's a rheumatologist, who said, there's nothing we can do for you. And my heart just stopped. Mm -hmm. What? I've got to live like this forever. But what he also did was give me um, the book for Challenge of Pain by Malzac and Wall. And so, and this was well before I started doing anything in pain management. So I read the book and got really interested in the fact that I could help myself. So I did. I started doing things again and lost that fear that this pain means something terrible. And then I didn't really look at pain until um, a few years later till I started to work in this work rehab um, centre and pain was this big problem and I had just a little, tiny little bit of pain knowledge, not not nearly enough, and um, and thought, well, I'd better learn a bit more about it. At that time, I then moved to Christchurch to work. Um, so I'd been living in Auckland and moved to Christchurch and worked with um, Dr. Nick Kendall, who's a clinical psychologist who's one of the developers of the Yellow Flags document. That's the acute low back pain psychosocial risk factors. And started to do the return to work component in the Irwood Pain Management Centre and needed to learn more about pain. So that's how I started to do psychology. (laughs) And then I always wanted to look at this interesting group of people who who we don't see. Um, And my partner's one of those people he's got ankylosing spondylitis mm. but he's never let that get in the way of doing his climbing up and down hills being a high country firefighter um doing the man diving doing all the manly things mm-hmm. and so when I saw the saw him and I reflected on the people I was seeing and realized that there was there are a group of people out there who just seem to get on with life And that sowed the seed for um, how can I understand this group of people? And that's my PhD. Got it. It's a long ride. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I mean, I think when you have such personal connections to to your subject matter, you know, in in this case to chronic pain conditions and to, to painful conditions in general, it's just such a great motivator to kind of push you forward and to learn more. Yeah, I think for me, I'm a I'm a reader and a learner and a let's find this information out. And in the mid to late 80s, there was an enormous explosion of self-management, psychological approaches to pain management that there were opportunities that prior to that had never been really considered. Mm. Um, pain management was, well, pretty much like we still see, an awful lot of pill-popping, right. surgery, um, I had physio interferential and I had ultrasound. I mean, I had everything (laughs) that physios do um, and none of them made any difference. And it was only when I came to a very behavioral approach that I found I was actually learning how to do things for myself. So it was a really fortunate time to get interested in pain. Mm -hmm. And then my own interest in return to work. In New Zealand, it was embryonic. There were... Um, very few people looking at how do we help people who've had an injury reintegrate and I just found that um, extraordinary area to work in it sort of tickles that area of me that wants to find out how things are made Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know you can look at factories and and look at the various jobs that people do and it's absolutely fascinating how people spend a whole day Um, yeah so that's that's where the fascination came from Yeah, and, you know, your research, so you sort of mentioned briefly, so your research looked at people living well with chronic pain. And and I think a lot of people may think of that as like an oxymoron, you know, like a jumbo shrimp. Like, how can you live well when when you have chronic pain? So in, in in your research, how do you take that and translate it over into, like we kind of said in the beginning, a person working with another person. Yeah. What I what I discovered, so I recruited people who had a range of t- conditions. I started with um, 
rheumatological conditions, and then I broadened out into less clear-cut, like um, hypermobility and fibromyalgia and so those weirder kind of dis- disorders. And I asked people to get in touch with me if they thought they were living well. So it was their definition okay. of, of living well. And what I discovered was that it's a process, that you don't arrive there, have pain, and the next day you're all fine with it. It seems to take a little while, and that's that little while is variable. But the, there are three kind of phases to learning to live well. The first part is getting to make sense of what's going on. So what is it that I've got? What's the name of it? What are these symptoms? Um, what's my set of symptoms? How do they vary so I know what my normal is? And, and during that time... It's hard for people to think about which plans or or what they want to do. Um, so that, at that stage, all the energy is being spent and just trying to get their head around this new reality, mm-hmm. which is a tough period. And I think we get to see a lot of people at that point, but we don't recognise that perhaps their main concern at that time is what is this thing and what's the impact on me? And they can't quite get to the point of thinking, um, what do I really want to do? If this is my reality, what do I really want to do? That that comes after. Mm-hmm. So once people get a name for what they've got, um, and getting a name seems to be really important, and it's very interesting because it it's consistent in the qualitative literature, but it's not when you look at what health professionals say. So when health professionals say, give them, you know, that giving a diagnosis is not important, but people living with pain say that is really important to them. So they want to know, they want to know that that label matches with their understanding of what the label means. They want to be able to say their symptoms match with that label, and people will keep on looking to get a label that fits with their own understanding of their, themselves and what the label means. Um, and then they use that as a way of explaining to other people, hey, somebody knows this is what I've got. It's understandable. It's not mysterious anymore. It's it's verified, um, sanctioned, and not in a negative way. It's just saying, yes, people know what this is. It's not something spooky. And what, what happens if that goes to the negative? So if someone uh, is having, for example, like, chronic sort of widespread neck, upper back, arm pain. They go, mm. they find out they have herniated discs. And it does, yeah. their symptoms do match with kind of what the textbooks say, but then they get fixated on that. And they can't move beyond, well, I, I have herniated discs. Yeah. So is can that be a negative to that sort of first phase of living well? And how do you get someone out of that if they're in stuck in that phase? Am I jumping the gun or was that next? No, no, that's a really good question because um, because that's right. In the case of the participants in my study, most of them had uh, they had rheumatological conditions or they had hypermobility and that was, that was good for them. But they didn't get those biomechanical explanations. Um, but what they – I did interview a few right at the end and what they found was that – they didn't think that explained everything, which I think is really interesting because most of us think that it does. If we if we give an explanation that that should fit everything, these guys who were at the end of their journey said, "Oh, they said I had a disc prolapse, um, but it didn't explain why I still felt so tired at night. Why why my symptoms changed? I think." Attached to the label is so much of that explanation of what does it actually mean? What are the what can we expect from this? What's the prognosis? Not so much the treatment, but one of the factors that was important was to say actually maybe this is permanent. And hearing that this pain is likely to remain was a really important turning point for um for all of the participants. Mm-hmm. So they stopped that search for the 
the cure and the I desire. I got it. I got it. So they sort of stop the search for that external magic cure or pill and perhaps can then start saying to themselves, okay, this is where I'm at. So yeah. now I have to move on. Or like David says, Butler says, you know, build a bridge and get over it. That's the one. Yeah. And I found that um, people are – Health professionals are very reluctant to say, maybe this is how it is. Maybe your pain is going to remain. And I guess that's the, the hardest conversation for us to have because I think for a lot of doctors in particular, they think that I'm going to remove all hope from this person. Um, and it's not something that they're trained to do. I think allied health, OTs, physios, massage therapists, osteopaths and such like might find that a little bit easier because we're inclined to see those people who don't get better. Mm-hmm. And and so we've got a little bit more awareness of the relevance of the psychosocial parts. So how do you how do you say that to a patient? So the patient comes to you, how do you say to them, you know, this might be a permanent or it might be a, a, a lifelong issue. How do you say that to someone without them cursing at you, standing yep. up, turning around and going to the next person who's going to be like, we can fix this, not a yep. problem. I, I guess the way that I do it is using Socratic questioning. So I ask them, what do, what do you think the chances are of us finding something that's going to take this all away? Especially if they've been, it's four years down the track, which is often the point at which I see people, and they say, and they usually say, I just don't think there's going to be a cure. And so I look, so what, then I go over weighing up the decision making of, do you go looking for the cure? And what does, what are the good things about that? And what are the not so good things about putting your life on hold while you look for the cure. Mm. And then we look at the reverse, which is, so what if you decide this is what it is? What would be good about that and what would be not so good? And then I hand it back to the person, where does that leave you? And that's, so I'm not making the decision. I'm just saying you can keep looking, but there might be things that are good about learning to live with what you do have. And there's a, a quote that I always bring out from John Wooden, famous New York basketball coach, I think he's in New York, Um, it says, don't let what you cannot do get in the way of what you can do. Mm. And it's the best quote ever to just to focus on what you can do. Mm -hmm. So I think that alongside a a diagnostic label, we need to have conversations about the benefits or not of trying to go back to a normal because – the whole process of learning to live with pain is about when pain comes on, life becomes incoherent. It doesn't make sense anymore. Right. And the self, your self-concept, the person that you think you are, suddenly goes. You know, you can't rely on yourself to do the things that you used to be able to do. And the expectations that you have of yourself disappear. And for a long time, people are sustained in the search to go back to the person they used to be. But, you know, 5, 10, 15 years later, they're never going to be that person. So it's about saying, who can I be now? And so the process of, of um, learning to live well is about recognising I do need to let go of that desire to go back to my old self and look to build this new person. So the first part of this process is making sense. Then people hit a point, usually when they've heard that this is the way it is, um, and they've got somebody that they believe will stand by them, even if they don't follow the rules, <laughs> who, who communicates and does those little extra things that show to the person that you're a, you're a unique individual. So every person told me the same thing. So people would get a phone call in between a session from their clinician. Or they'd get a personalised set of exercises that had, these are your ones. Or the person said, I went on the internet and I got this out for you, so you know a bit more. Just those little extra things that showed that this person's being thought about and 
they're not just run of the mill. That was really, really important. And then if they've got both, they've known now that this is as good as it gets and they've got that person and then they've got something or some, some drive that they want to be. So I've called it occupational drive. It's showing my occupational therapy background. But occupation is about not just employment, but all those things that we do in life that are so important, the daily routines, the roles that we have, the, um, the sports and hobbies that make us feel who we are. And so all of these people identified they had something that they really wanted to be able to get back to do that made them feel like they were themselves again. And that was a, called a decision point or a turning point. And they made a decision. And it was almost like they all told me, I just, I just decided to get on with it. So just decided and get on with it were two really interesting words or phrases that people use. And when that happened, then they tipped over away from trying to make sense of what was going on and over into the third phase, which is flexibly persisting. Which, which is, is what? I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Flexibly persisting. Flexibly persisting. So that means doing whatever it takes to do whatever you want. So that means people are saying, I've got this really important thing I want to do. I'm going to find a way. Even if I do it differently, even if I don't do it the same way I used to do it, um, but as long as so if somebody, for example, said I'm, I'm a really I really want to be a good dad, that's that's my whole thing, then they would find new ways to go out to the sports um, field with their kids. They'd look at um, you know rough and tumble that they used to do with the kids. Well, they'd do it differently. They'd choose a different form of rough and tumble. They'd find a way to be present for their children. So it was like the values that, that the, the occupation lives out for them, they found different ways to express that. So if you're a rugby player, rugby is really important in New Zealand, really important, and it's the Rugby World Cup at the moment, but if you're a rugby player, then one of the guys said that he was 19 and he'd been told, you need to stop playing rugby because you've got osteoarthritic knees. And he was gutted because this was his thing. I met him and he was 67 and he was driving a concrete truck all day. And we're in the middle of the Christchurch earthquake rebuild. So concrete truck drivers are in demand. So he's working 12-hour shifts. He cycled 10Ks to get to work and 10Ks to get back. So that's a long cycle ride. And he was playing Masters Rugby. Because he just decided that it wasn't worth living if he couldn't do the things that he loved. So he just decided. He started to play rugby again, started a few games when he was a bit younger, and, and he's just carried on. And I, I think that's the, the way that he did that was through, he came on to be a, a sub, so he'd just come in for a few minutes. He, he was always around the rugby club. He was... Um, he was mixing with his mates who were all rugby players so it was a, ca a case of going back to those things that gave him meaning it's really cool yeah it's it's pretty amazing and I you know I was really struck by um, what you said earlier sorry I don't know why I'm starting to cry um, I may have to edit this out um, okay anyway um, what you said earlier about kind of losing yourself yeah, and then coming back and it's, you know, that's hard to do. That's, that's the guts of what chronic pain takes from people is all those things that are who you are and they're often the bits that nobody touches. Nobody sees, so what's it like to not be as tidy as you used to be because you just don't have that energy or you can't be as patient with your kids because you're so exhausted at the end of the day. Um, you can't be as perfectionist as you really want to be. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I and do, it's yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> those things that, um, that I think we often forget 
when we're helping people, we think about let's help you move more, but we forget that that time, just the time taken to do those exercises takes time away from other things that people value. Sure, yeah. And I guess that's why the part of the process, I think, is saying who are you and who do you want to be? Who is this person and how can I help you be the person that you really are underneath that pain and distress? Um, and I think that everybody in, in pain management, anybody who sees somebody who's got pain, should really be thinking about that. What does it mean to the person? What's the greatest, um, the most important thing for that person? Sure, like what, what is it that you value the most? Yeah. You know, kind of going back to that, like, values-based care. Um, yeah. But it is, you know, God, I had, you know, pain for, for a long time, and and that's that was the hardest part. Mm. Yeah. Is, and it's so get you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I guess I never really thought about it until you said that. Um, whew, but it is hard to sort of let those parts of you go and then you know move on but you know I think that's a little bit of what when I met David Butler what he Mm. sort of allowed me to do is he said hey listen like this might be the kind of the way it is so you like he says like you build a bridge and you get over it and you start gradually adding things into your life like Maybe you can't go out and, you know, carry 20 bags of groceries like you used to and be really mm. strong but or feel like that's the reason why you're strong, mm. that you find strength in other areas. Absolutely. And I think that's the – what I find with these people, I've spent years listening to people who find their lives are so empty they're full of full of things. They're full of doctors' appointments. Right. They're full right. of treatments. They're full of waiting for doctors' appointments mm-hmm. and waiting for treatments and, and approval and waiting just to get better. Yeah, and approvals from insurers and yeah. people give permission for you to do anything. And so life is full, but it's empty. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're trying. What we what I think we need to do more of is saying how much is it worth how much is it costing you to try to be be back to how you were Mm -hmm. how much can we add in to make you more you right and it's even now right and 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 you know it's it's almost like unrealistic to think you're going to go back and doing to do all the things that you were doing perhaps before you had these these whatever chronic issues that you're having you know it's like the same when I when you get the person who's in their 50s or 60s and they say oh I used to you know run sprints and do all this stuff all the time and you ask them when they're like you know in high school exactly <laughs> and it's like well things have changed you know there you, you have to kind of look at where you are in the present and say what can I do or what what do I want to do to make my life as full as it can be even though maybe I can't play soccer anymore or I can't do x y and z like the way I used to, but there are certainly other options that one can can do. Exactly. I, I think it's also useful to ask, so what was it about sprinting and sports that you loved? Why did, why did you like doing it? And how can we build something of that? Right. And so it's those values again. Yeah, and I think the example you gave about the rugby player who, when he was younger, it sounded to me like you were, he was expressing the need for a community mm. of, of like-minded people to be with. You know, like you said, he would kind of hang out with the rugby players and go in and sub and perhaps go out to dinner afterwards. So it was, it was that sense of community that when you have a, a chronic pain condition is so important to feel like you still belong to a group, even though maybe you're not what you used to be. I think that's the carrying that invisible sort of separation. I'm not who I used to be. I feel like I'm not who I used to be. I'm, and yet nobody can see that is so isolating. It's yeah. unbelievably isolating. And to be able to say I can connect, 
Like what you do connects you with other people. The way you dress, the way you happen to tidy your house or not, <laughs> the way that you drive. Uh, you're going to look at other people and you're going to say, I'm like them or I'm different from them or some bits. And that's, that's how we find our way. So just to recap the living well, those sort of steps, one is make sense of what's going on, uh, need someone who can stand by them, um, and, and that flexibility, flexible persistency. Those are sort of the three steps. Well, there's, there's making sense, there's deciding, and then there's flexibly persisting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Flexi persisting is the, the, the living, doing things and yeah. getting back to normal right. life. Yeah. Just getting back into your life. Yeah. Well, that was a nice session for me. <laughs> yeah, you're okay. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I was surprised at that. I don't know what, I'm like, what is going on? Why am I, but I think it just was, you encapsulated everything that I think that I was thinking when I had those sort of five, six years of chronic pain. And, and mm. that's exactly what someone in chronic pain thinks. And that's, that's why I privileged, I'm so privileged to have talked to these, these people because I hear people at the first part, oh, none of this is making sense. But these guys had come to the other end and they, not that they were saying that, the, that life was fabulous or that they were better than they used to be. It's more that they had learned and they were now being who they could be. And it was such a positive, uplifting mm -hmm. experience, such amazing stories. You know, real. we've got innovators, we've got people who are entrepreneurs doing – one woman's a personal trainer, um, and she's working with people who've got um, chronic health issues, lots of chronic health issues – and she's just so dynamic, and that's that's exciting. I think we can look to more pain heroes like that to say you don't have to be this person stuck in a in a really cold, hard, lonely place. You can be connected again. You can be yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's what a like an exhilarating place to be once you get there. You yeah, know? it really is. Um, okay, so we so getting through the how living well, okay, how to live well with chronic pain. Now, how as the practitioner do we do we implement this sort of patient-centered approach, this values-based pain management? That's mm. um, I guess I start by listening to what the person sees as their main concern. And it's often expressed as, oh, I want my pain to be gone. But I I want to know, so if your pain is no longer such a problem for you, what what would be do what would you be doing? I want to understand their personal theory about their pain. So I can begin where the person's at. There's a famous occupational therapy um or commentator from way, way back in the early, early days, start where the learner is at and move at the learner's pace. So if we take the word learner out, we say start where the person's at and we move at their pace. We've got to understand where the person's at first. So when somebody comes in to to see me, I want to say, what do you think's going on? What are all the things, you know, I know you've heard all these explanations from other people, but what's your theory? How do you make sense of all of this? And then move to what's your main concern? What, what are the things that are really getting in the way of who you want to be? And I, it's not so much what you do as much as who you want to be. From there, it's much easier to start looking at setting um, some goals that are around where the person's at. So if the person says, look, I just don't have a clue about what theory I have for my pain, it's just a whole mess, then I might suggest well, let's start there as, as your first goal. Let's see if we can help you make sense of what's going on. And I don't diagnose, but I can help you understand what your pattern of your symptoms are, 
what your what the effect is so that you know how much vacuuming you can do, for example, <laughs> before it's a you've you've blown your energy budget. Or um, you know, what are the specific things that you can't do? So we can get some quantification around that. And from there you find um, people start to come up with what they really want to be able to do. You know, oh yeah, I know I can't drive very far, I can only drive, you know, half an hour. And that doesn't get you very far. And I really want to be able to go and take my kids, be a taxi person. Everybody has to be a taxi for their kids. Um, so that's a really cool goal. And and then I build into everything that I do saying, what, what, why is that so important? What's so important about it? Um, and that's where you can use the um, importance and confidence scales. And this is from motivational interviewing. So, okay, if I just talk a bit, little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. That was actually when I asked people for some questions for you, uh, Susan Clinton, her uh, question was she would love to hear more, uh, hear the importance and confidence questions again. So, right. yes, let's talk about it. So when, you, when somebody's not moving, they're not engaged, they're not motivated, there's two reasons usually. One is that it's not very important to them. It's in the greater scheme of things, something else is more important. And the other is that they're not confident. They just think they're going to fail. Mm. So when you add those things two together and you build importance and you build confidence, then people can feel that they can start taking the next step. So I always talk about the next best step, not you know, doing everything, but what's your next best step? With the importance um, rating, so we have a scale from 0 to 10, and I ask the person to, to rate how important is it for us to, for you to be able to do, um, like drive your car for half an hour, and they might put it at a 5, so that's pretty important. Then the next question I'm asking is, so why did you put it at a 5 and not a 0, or somewhere down that end? And that helps to generate from the person all the reasons why it's important. And then the next question could be, so is that a five at the moment? What would what would it take for it to just shift up to a five and a half? Just a little bit more. So zero is, is not important. Ten is extremely important. Just should shift a little bit. Once again, you're eliciting um, the motivational factors, the, the reasons that this person thinks this is really important for them. And we know that the more somebody can identify motivational reasons, you know, why this is important, the more that they become committed to doing it. So you can give lots and lots of reasons and it, it's very important and you can then use those as little motivators to remind yourself why you're doing it in the first place. And then the second one is confidence. So it's the same same scale, zero for no confidence at all, 10 for this is supremely confident on no trouble, but do it, no trouble. And then um, you again ask them to rate it, and you again ask them why did you put it there and not a lower number? And what would it take to build your confidence just a little bit? Um, and if at the end of this you find that importance is really quite low it's maybe still at a two and confidence is 10 then you need to move into building up the importance so you need to work really hard on helping the person identify and strengthen the values that are underpinning that goal or you might find that actually it's just not that important but something else that you haven't talked about really is so sometimes people will come to me and they've been sent um, by their case manager from the insurance company and they don't really want to be there. So actually what's on their minds is I really need to get my kid to the doctor or I've got my house payments are just, you know, I'm losing it because I'm not getting paid and that's way more important than learning to manage pain right now. And so I can help them take the next best step to manage that really important thing that's more important than what I can do and just leave the door open for them to come back to me when they're ready. 
um, to, to start working on their pain. And while that can feel a bit like, oh, I've lost a client, it actually builds their confidence that you're respecting their values, that you're willing to be flexible. And when they come back, it's like nothing stops them. They're absolutely committed to, because they're ready to get on board with what you're doing. And I just find that is a really nice approach. With building confidence, I'm looking much more at um, what's given them confidence in the past. Mm-hmm. So what they might tell somebody next door, if they were, you know, neighbour over the fence, how would you encourage your neighbour? What would you say to your neighbour to say you can do it? Um, I might look at other instances where they've overcome something. What did you learn? Um, other challenges. So there's a, lots of ways of, um, you know, have they seen anybody else that's been able to achieve this? How did they do it? So giving some really practical um, ways to, it's like building a scaffold around them to support them while their confidence is building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then setting the goal at the right level. And that's why I start talking about, so what do you think the next best step is? So I do those two scales and then I say, so where does that leave you? What do you think is your next best step? And usually that, it does it. <laughs> and people will say, oh, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. And they'll set it and you're away laughing. And and do you ever get the, the I don't know? Yep. And, and so how do you deal this, with then, I don't know? This is, um, there's a good, good group of people out there. They're called other people. <laughs> so I say, other people have said they they want to do X, Y, and Z. And I list some, some goals. Or I've used a menu approach. So you have a um, an A4 sheet of paper. And I usually put areas that I know that people with chronic pain are interested in. Exercise, sleep, diet, medications, relaxing. And then I leave a couple of empty spaces um, that I, I say to them, look, I've put some ideas that other people, the infamous other people, mm-hmm, have used. Mm-hmm. Great. That's and an awesome some, idea. Yeah. I left some spaces for you. Just have a look through these and see if any of these are um, would be something you'd be interested in looking at. And often that will start them. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can start by looking at what you miss the most about what you can't, you know, things that you can't do now. Mm-hmm. And that tends to help people pick um, pick a direction. Yeah. I mean that's you know, you can you can make suggestions, but generally people will come up with your own stuff. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because I you know, I feel like sometimes uh, when people say I don't know, sometimes we'll be like, well, you know, think about it and come back and tell me next time, which may not be the best approach it sounds like. I think it, it just might, might leave them just confused yeah. and, and reeling. So I like the technique of, well, other people are doing X, Y, and Z. Here are some things. Do, do any of these fit into your lifestyle? Or, or might this be something you you would like to think about or you would like to incorporate into your life? Yeah. I think that's especially important when, when people have had pain for a very long time. And what I find is so many people get stuck in what they call limbo land because they're waiting to for a cure that doesn't exist. Um, and they're being fed by often by doctors. And, and with the most generous spirit, the doctors are saying, look, I want to help you. Let's find a cure. And that loops people back into this fruitless quest for the cure that's going to do it. Um, so I like to, to help people in that in that time I check have they made sense of their pain do they know what their symptoms are like now what would make your life much more like you so mm. it sort of builds still that's into a great that question yeah pain. what would make your life much more like you yeah excellent we question not change, we're changing the proportions so um I usually draw a picture at this stage I draw a circle and I draw a smaller circle inside but it's it's a fairly big circle. That's your pain. The outside circle is life, you. <laughs> and then what I try to do is show that actually we can expand life 
the pain may stay the same size, but proportionally it's smaller because we're expanding life. Because life shrinks. You know, life shrinks when you stop doing – I find people stop the fun things first. Mm -hmm. They stop their hobbies. They don't want to go down to the pub with their friends. They, They stop having fun. They don't go to the movies. It takes time and energy and they haven't got that. And then they start losing the work stuff and then they start losing their own self-care stuff. That's usually their last thing to go. And so I'll often start with building in pleasurable activities. Um, let's build some fun. When did you last have a belly laugh? Why? How about heading off to some stand-up comedy? I know a good comedian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Just, just doing little things like that that mean – Give people permission to have some fun and to put a little bit of spontaneity in. And for lots of people, it's got to be absolutely cheap. <laughs> they've got no money because they've got insurance and it's not paying much. So it might be just go buy a cup of coffee or go and sit in the park just for five minutes. Those little tiny snacks um, just to build that sense of um, being more myself. Sure, and that's, I mean, immeasurable in, in the long run, right? So yeah. now, let, let me ask you, do you have, you have a little more time to chat here? Yeah, I do. Okay, because yep. what we're going to do is we're going to kind of wrap things up here for part one, and then <laughs> people will have to listen to part two next week. So, <laughs> so everybody... Um, this has been such a great conversation thus far, obviously a little emotional on my part, which I'm really surprised about, but I guess that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, so listen, this is part one with Bronnie. So next week, be sure to come back and, and listen to part two. So Bronnie, you're, you've got a little more time. We can keep going here. Perfect. Okay. So everybody. We're going we're gonna to end part one right now. Have a great week. Stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. And then be sure to tune in next week to hear part two. <laughs>